Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technology. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and this is a very special episode. We've come to number 100. It's been a long way. In 2015 and 2016, when I started getting involved in the digital health space, the main dilemma was, do mobile digital health apps have any real potential or are they only a hype trend without value? Today, there are over 400,000 mobile apps on the market. The regulatory bodies have established the regulatory framework for these solutions and we're seeing an increase in the number of digital therapeutics, strictly digital tools that are validated through clinical trials. We've made progress in figuring out what works and what doesn't. We're discovering the usability and potential of voice technology. We're learning how to use AI in healthcare for speeding up the progress and scientific findings. And while slow, the healthcare infrastructure and system design are moving in the direction where chronic patients can take care of their health as much as possible outside the healthcare system. The vision of Faces of Digital Health podcast has always been to contribute to global healthcare improvement by moving away from American centricity in reporting and also give the attention to solutions and innovators in other countries around the world. I believe that a broader understanding of different cultures and environments can help improve understanding of the global market to move towards a world where healthcare will not lag behind other industries in technological progress. I will continue to strive for bringing diversity in my interviews and enrich the library of country and region profiles, which now include a glimpse in almost all continents in the world, from Africa, Europe, Asia, US, Australia and South America. I am planning an additional episode about Australia this year and an episode about New Zealand, which has not been covered yet. I hope you will join me on this further exploration journey. So if you're not subscribed to the show yet, please do so and you will be notified about each new episode automatically. And to browse through old episodes, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. I will prepare a separate special episode about the reflection and findings from the old episodes, but today we will continue where we left off in the previous episode, that is, in South America. After listening about Colombia, Argentina and Brazil, you will hear about Venezuela and a little bit about Chile today. I spoke with Luis Santiago, the CEO of Pegasi, an IT company specialized in digital health and the smart management of healthcare information from Venezuela. Luis has been involved in the company since his teenage years because his father founded the company in 1992. While Luis pursued a completely different career path initially, 
He studied journalism. He later dived into programming to be able to lead and develop the company further. In this episode, you will hear him talk about the current state of healthcare IT in Venezuela, which is a country in a severe turmoil because of a political crisis that also turned into a medical crisis. By December 2019, 1.8 million people fled to Colombia. You will hear a little bit more about that from Luis. He currently lives in Chile, which in contrast is one of the most attractive countries to form a startup in Latin America, according to Startup VC. Enjoy the show, and if you will like what you hear, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. The instructions how to do that are on our website, and I added the link in the show notes. Visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to explore other episodes as well. Thank you for your support. It is the fuel for the show. Now, to Luis. Luis, let's start with a little bit of your family reflection, your history reflection. Your father launched a company in 1992, which ended up uh, becoming one of the first and largest healthcare IT companies in Venezuela. So this means that you actually had quite a different entrepreneurial journey that most first-time CEOs. Can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, how following healthcare IT has been for the last two, 20 years uh, in Venezuela? Yeah, it's been quite a journey to see how it has evolved in the past couple of years. I, uh, even though I officially entered the company in 2008, I've been working with my dad since I was a teenager. At first, job was like assembling and disassembling computers and doing maintenance. Like when I was on vacations, I used to do some maintenance for physicians. That has allowed me to have a really good insight uh, in the long run on how physicians work and specifically what they look for when finally they implement healthcare IT. Having that idea uh, actually comes from my dad just being super entrepreneur in 1992, like a couple, we- uh, a couple years earlier. He quit the Venezuelan oil company, PDVSA, and he was one of, one of the first people in Venezuela who learned how to code. And he actually got the idea from a hospital where a very large oil hospital, oil company hospital, where they didn't have any idea who was lying on which bed. It was chaos. So he developed a, a database to store that information. And that's when it hit them that the, the niche wasn't built in Venezuela. It was a very virgin uh a very virgin area uh, to explore and he started working on that and it became like the official family business since uh, 1992 and ever since uh, the the evolution has been amazing Uh, even though in venezuela you had a smaller operation in healthcare it's than in other countries there, there are many more that evolve in a faster manner like for example argentina and brazil with uh, that are the largest uh, countries or the largest markets for healthcare IT in Latin America. The Venezuelan market itself grew fast. When we started, we were like the only competitors in the area. And when we exited the market, we diminished our operations in 2016 and 17 because we migrated. And we saw that where 
like the, the peak time was around 2014 and 2015 because there were a lot of competitors in the market. There were at least eight other companies who were providing this kind of service. But then the, the crisis hit and the, the lowest moment in crisis in acquisition power in Venezuela was in 2016. A lot of our competitors either left the country and like, for example, we, we went to customers who had a part of our solution implemented and then had like the, they were doing their uh, laboratory with other software. And they said like, oh, no, the, the guy that uh, developed the software went to live in Aruba and he's not taking our calls anymore. Or uh, I don't know, this was uh, bought to a company outside of Venezuela and we don't have access to preferential dollars. So we cannot pay for the software anymore. It paints a, a very large picture in how the, the service that you provide to patients declines when healthcare IT software uh, implementation and adaptation and usability declines because of the country's whole uh, situation. So there, there were a lot of processes that uh, our customers used to do on computers that they had to resort to doing by hand. And then there's again, the error on transcription and the error storing that information and multiplying that information. Venezuela has faced like a devolution, as you might say, in, in that sense. So the, the current status is there's a lot of areas that operate like they did in the 80s, perhaps even earlier, because of the technology uh, adoption is not possible. So what is the, the general state of digitization in healthcare like at the moment? And maybe you can add a word or two about the political crisis that has been going on for quite a few years uh, now. December last year, 1.8 million people fled to Colombia. Yeah, uh, and it's actually sometimes even glamorized in international media. The situation is more dire than we might think. Uh, on healthcare IT, we have the, the need and actually our customers are public and private hospitals. And for example, uh, there's the, the current COVID crisis is uh, affecting hospitals in more ways that we can tell. Like there's not enough uh, material or space to keep patients with COVID apart from regular patients and then everyone's getting infected and the, the contamination curve is a lot bigger than in any other countries. So uh, it's a very dire situation. Regarding the, the crisis and the effects, one of the main hits in the healthcare area, not just healthcare IT, but he healthcare in general, is that one of the first uh, professions that left the country were physicians. And around just 15% of uh, physicians that graduate every day in Venezuela remain in Venezuela. The other ones go abroad. Uh, for example, in Chile, we have around 7,000 physicians that have currently enrolled and offered great positions in the, in the interior of Chile to provide the service that they studied in a public uh, university in Venezuela. The second effect is that we have the most adaptive uh, physicians in the world because we, you have to do everything with your claws and, and you have to uh, focus on trying to save the patient no matter the resources that you have at hand. So other countries in the region and in the world have come to appreciate the Venezuelan physician for having that, uh, that ability. The, the physicians that stay in Venezuela are the ones that either have, they, they've had their practices for too long and or their families for too long and they have elderly families that cannot leave the country. There's a huge lack of personnel in Venezuela and that's one of the biggest dramas as well. And the effect of course is that healthcare IT 
doesn't have people right now who in, in the technological curve are higher because they're, they were born with controlling electronic devices. So the, the, the majority of uh, those are outside of the country. When did you get interested in actually working for the company, by the way, because you studied something completely different? You were went into the communication space, right? Yeah, um, by training, I'm a journalist. But as I told you, I, I worked with my dad ever since I was like 15 years old. I remember one year before graduating, I started working in the communication side of the company. We opened a multimedia vertical. And that multimedia vertical, I started applying the things that I learned throughout my career. And it was a very cool opportunity because I started going into the, the operating rooms and recording surgeries. That was really interesting. Like, I, I don't know, for example, the, the main uh, surgeries that we focus on were traumatology and producing marketing material for pharmaceutical companies. Like uh, at that time, Sherry Plow, Pfizer, Roche in Venezuela where some of our customers about after six or seven months of working in that area and having these very cool projects, uh, we got into a very, very large project as a company. That was our first clinic. That was pretty much, we, we started with that clinic uh, when the clinic was being built. And my dad said, like, I cannot do this alone. Uh, I cannot develop this software on my own. And kind of like uh, the only person in the company that knows the whole uh, operation is you. So are you willing to work with me? And do we take this contract or something? Yeah, let's do it. That forced me to also learn programming. And I started being learning like visual basic and databases. And I said like my dad, hey man, it's like 2008 and we are still using a very basic database. We were using Access at the time. I said like, no, we have to migrate to SQL Server. And I did that whole migration and standardization of the versions of the software. I have always had kind of like, it's not an obsessive compulsive disorder, but I'm very uh, order oriented. And I started applying those, creating a way of uh, systematizing all the, the software that we developed and just went right in. Which year was this? This was in 2000, between 2007 and 2008. And uh, the software that you were developing for that hospital in the making, was that like a full EHR? Yeah, it was a full EHR. So how did that develop later on? Was that the software that you mentioned that you then expanded to other companies during the crisis? A few years ago? Yeah, uh, we actually, uh, the, the basis of the, and the EHR were there. We had developed over 30 medical specialties. Uh, at the time, we were, there were like 18 medical specialties. We developed a lot of them uh, throughout time. So what we started doing at that moment was centralizing all the versions that we had into a single one. So you could have what we call a centralized record, like uh, triage, emergency and hospitalization information shares the space with uh, external consultation. And then you go to a single patient's uh, medical record and you can see whatever the physician in that organization did or wrote about the patient. So that was one of the main concepts that we had uh, at that time in Venezuela. We were the first one to develop like a centralized medical record uh, because all of the, the other sites, either you had an external consultation software or you had a, an EHR uh, an EMR, actually. That's kind of the concept that was applied in Venezuela. And uh, like what we did was integrate everything into 
what we call a 360 degrees vision of what's happening with the patient. Uh, so that was kind of a, a national integration, like a national backbone or something different? No, we tried that. Uh, we uh, developed a project for uh, the, the National Healthcare Ministry in 2016. Uh, it didn't pass, of course. Uh, the, the interest of the government was somewhere else. But the, the vision was uh, we had a, a clinic that had a lot of uh, subsidiaries like a uh, franchise. And then they could use the software throughout the franchises and they were communicated. So if the patient went into franchise A, they had the same medical record in B and C and D. So we started working at that time in database distribution, which was a huge technological challenge for a, a team that didn't have the technical studies to do it. But then we did it and, and it worked like very well. Like our, our first uh, cloud-based uh, databases were back then. Just for cl clarification, how big is the market at the moment and wh what is your market share? So how many hospitals approximately are uh, in Venezuela and could potentially, you know, become your customers as well, given that you mentioned before that some of the competition died off? Uh, in Venezuela, I, I would have a hard time telling you because even though there are certain zones in the country where you have like new, mainly ORs, uh, operating rooms for aesthetical surgery. I haven't heard about new hospitals, new clinics founded in the, in the past four years. Before you had uh, a growth in that sense, and it's steadily declined between 2014, uh, 2015 and 16. Those were like the critical years for healthcare. Mostly also because the insurance companies left. Either they started paying like the, their primes in, in Bolivares and the Bolivar was losing ground to the dollar like in a very, very fast manner. And then the clinics, uh, the, the patients didn't have enough money to support their clinic, uh, the clinic's uh, operations. So patients started electing going to the, to a doctor when it was exclusively an, uh, an emergency and that uh, didn't hit well the clinic. So. Many of them closed. So in, in that sense, it's really hard for me to tell you how many clinics are left right now standing in Venezuela and how big is the market share. We would have to do a very, very uh, specific uh, study. Uh, we have uh, a lot of our customers that uh, either are not living in Venezuela anymore or are in Venezuela but are not uh, practicing medicine, but instead they went to do something else that could support them. Many of our very large customers have uh, stopped using the software altogether and we stopped receiving communications from them because they, they are not operating anymore. So in, institutions, complete institutions have been shut down. And uh, the insurance companies that you mentioned that also left or, mm -hmm. uh, so what happened with the patients that were insured with them? Did they have to choose just a different insurance or did people just decided that they will not have health insurance? The ones that could started paying international uh, insurances, uh, but they are usually very expensive. Uh, for example, when you go and check, and that's leveling out right now, uh, but uh, at one point, the minimum wage in Venezuela was uh, around a dollar and a half. And then for an international insurance, you have to pay around $2,000. So it was out of reach for 99.9% .9 of the population. And, uh, the people, yeah, the people who could afford it, uh, sometimes they even decided to leave the country to get medical attention because they were, the one that they got in the country was not the best due to scarcity in medication and, uh, scarcity in, in materials. So when you say 
1.5 dollars. Did I get that right? Dollar and a half. Dollar and a half of what? What was that? Minimum wage. Okay, that's like impossible to imagine. So is it like, are the prices of food and everything like that much lower? Like because the valuation is so much different or? There's been a while uh, where the, the, the families have to have five or six people working just to pay for the uh, what you call the, the basic needs of a family. And they, uh, a family of five or six in the streets who are working could get like, I don't know, $15 or something like that. And then you had to... Per month. Yeah, per month. And then you had to buy very subsidized food because you couldn't buy anything else. Like, for example, if you try to buy like a Coke can, that would be like around... Uh, three and a half dollars, and then you will have to pay uh, work for a whole month to buy a can of Coke. The situation in Venezuela is like completely bonkers. <laughs> it's really, really, really uh, a very uh, how would you call it? Uh, Alice in the world, Alice in Wonderland situation. Uh, and the situation has grown more dire. I, li- I stopped living in Venezuela in December 2017. And every time either I talked to my friends back home or uh, I talked to, uh, or I went back in December 2018, uh, I saw the situation just keeps getting worse. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the solution that you have. So Pegasi, in a simplified explanation, standardizes medical data to help patients, physicians, and service providers to manage their information in a smart, accessible, and secure manner. And while doing that, data is aggregated and anonymized for real-time population health monitoring. Given everything that we just said about Venezuela and the monetary situation now, what does that mean for your business? How much can you even charge? Does it really still pay off for you to work there as a company? That's one of the main reasons that we focus on making Pegasi as cheap as possible was for it to be able to be used in Venezuela. We have uh, physicians in, in both in, in, in the private, private sector mostly that can charge around uh, 20 to $30 per consultation which is kind of like the standard. Uh, the past few months have been uh, standardizing, like, like the whole economy in Venezuela is on the dollar. It's working like you were either in Mexico or the US, pretty much the same prices. What we have seen is that uh, uh, someone in Venezuela does, doesn't have dollars, they don't work. Uh, they, they cannot buy things. So, uh, And they usually have money in the US. So even though we we have, are seeing a huge resurgence of our customers that want to remain in Venezuela are charging in U.S. dollars, and for them forty dollars per month is something that they can pay, and pretty much what because we handle the whole cycle for them, we handle the administrative side, the clinical side, and they can even afford to decentralize and depend less on the services of the clinic that are much more expensive. They can become like a very small unit on their own. And uh, we have seen like an increase of uh, the demand of customers of the platform that we currently have. And uh, was the situation in Venezuela the reason that you also started uh, working in Chile and Dominican Republic, which are two of your other markets that you're present at? The situation in Venezuela uh, contributed a lot. Uh, We started seeing the the trend in Venezuela of the situation worsening because uh, we saw many of our customers uh, closing operations that are very large clinics that were around for 25 years, 30 years, starting closing now. 
and then of course not paying for the usage of the software or paying for support anymore. So we started planning an expansion to other countries of Latin America. It was like a, a very uh, nice a conjunction of elements. We also had some consultants that used to work in Microsoft and they said like what we had could be really internationalized in the Korean sector. And then uh, we started working in an expansion strategy since uh, 2015. And then I had the fortune of uh, going into a program that's called YLI, Young Leaders of the Americas Initiative. Uh, it's a program with the Department of State in the US. And it was uh, between October and November 2016. We were going really fast on the expansion strategy. And then we were looking for, for capital to expand to other markets that we know about, we knew about uh, the Peruvian market and the Equatorian market. And, uh, in, while I was in that program, uh, I worked with my own old company, the one that I had in Venezuela. And, uh, I started talking to my mentor, uh, Michael Herrick in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Of all places, I went to Albuquerque and met Michael. It was a very happy coincidence. And <clears throat> at some point he asked, how many patients did we have in our database? I told him we have eight and a half million uh, medical records. So that resumes to around three and a half million patients. He said like, wow, that's a huge amount of information. What do you do with that data? I was like, nothing. <laughs> My job is to safeguard them. And he said like, oh boy, even though we have HIPAA and he was, a, he is actually a HIPAA consultant. Uh, there's many wondrous things that you can do for that with that information for your region and for your country. And then we started talking about artificial intelligence. We started talking about big data mining, about ciphering the, the information and strategies for anonymizing the patient. I said like, wow, we're missing half of what the, the benefit that we could do for our patients. So that was kind of how Pegasi was born. And the idea to expand uh, to Latin America uh, as a region was to incorporate these kind of services, like not just manage clinical and administrative information, but to use it in a meaningful way. So if you could compare Venezuela and Chile and Dominican Republic, what would you say? Like, how did they differ? And why? I know that you went to Chile because of an opportunity for the startups that Chile has, which we can talk a little bit more later. But why not Brazil or Argentina? Argentina also has a lot of scientists, so maybe you could get good employees there, you know, so various opportunities in other countries as well. The Venezuelan and Dominican market are, are very alike. The Venezuelan one was much more developed in terms of the amount of activity and Venezuela had a, a bigger private sector, uh, had less dependence, not only in insurance companies, but on patients had uh, cash flow until like 2014 to 2015, like in the situation I described. So uh, private health was always blooming. And also considering that uh, the public sector health has been like, uh, e both downsizing and lacking the proper materials ever since, uh, I don't know, uh, late 90s. The situation of public uh, hospitals started declining, didn't change with Hugo Chavez at all. Instead, the situation kept declining. So people had to resort to private, to the private sector to solve their needs. So at one point, I remember an analysis saying that the private sector, the private healthcare sector in Venezuela sustained around 60% of her, every attention. So it makes it really huge. In Latin America, the tendency is the other way around. 
between 30 and 40% of the operation in a country goes to the private sector and the other 60 or 70 go into the public sector. So Venezuela at some point got really inverted in a sense, which made the, the private sector bloom. But then yeah, around 2014, 2015, the government started striking really hard at clinics and expropriating clinics, also stopping importing of uh, medications and uh, of medical material and starting imposing really big taxes on those importations or those nationalization processes. So this, the business started declining. And as a consequence, our business started declining. And so the, the reality that I can describe for you in the Venezuelan market is really different. The, the, 2000, the early 2010 uh, to 2015 and after 2015, it's a really large uh, difference. And the reality that we had in Venezuela around 2015 really reminds me of the reality that we have in Dominican Republic right now. Uh, you have a very, what we call a non-nucleated um, private medical sector, uh, where, for example, the clinic belonged to, the, the clinic was founded by the grandfather who was a physician, and then the, the clinic went to the son who also was a physician, and then the grandson who probably is an engineer or a physician is going to control the clinic. So uh, it's a tradition industry, uh, kind of like we in Brazil. Uh, like my dad founded the company, uh, I kept going with it. Uh, it's kind of like the same concept in the private sector, uh, medical, the private medical sector here in in Dominican Republic. But then the the reality of that sector in Chile is completely different, as uh, so Chile has a more uh, U.S.-like model. Then what you saw when, when the Pinochet uh, dictatorship was that uh, Chile started copying a lot of the, of the way that uh, the Milton Friedman and the neoliberalism thesis said the country should work, where you have a very hands-off government and then privates uh, can do pretty much whatever they want. And uh, well, what you have in, in Chile is very large conglomerates uh, controlling uh, retail and you have a very large conglomerate controlling also the healthcare sector. And then, for example, you have a very large uh, clinic uh, chain. Yeah, very large clinic chains. And if you want to get in the private sector, you have to have a one on one with their director of IT who controls, I don't know, 36, 40, 45 clinics. So like the approximation to that, uh, to that market is really, really different than the one you might want to have in either Dominican Republic or Venezuela, where you talk to, uh, to the actors directly. Uh, in Chile, you, the, the best strategy, the one that we are following right now is having a large, uh, associate, we're having very good relations and associations with large actors. For example, we're working with Roche Laboratories in, in a very close alliance. We are working with Amazon Web Services and they have a foothold in the country and they have a, a large share of the market. So we can get those one-on-one -on -one conversations, which uh, large actors that might uh, look over us because we are a, a, a very small, uh, um, a very small startup. You know? Okay. Um, so, uh, um, based on uh, the research that I did, Chile sounds like a very uh, forward-thinking or at least ambitious country. 
Chile has put everything that I've learned throughout the years to test. You have to have very good relations, both with, uh, with those large actors that I described, but also you have to have very great relations with the other startups. Because, uh, you know, the, 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 the huge dilemma in healthcare is uh, interoperability in how can a single startup or a single company not handle everything? Unless you're like Epic or CERN Labs and you're evaluated at, I don't know, $11 billion, which is something that I expect for, for Pegasi in six or seven or eight years. But right now it's not like the case that I can do. So uh, this vibrant, as you said, ecosystem requires you to develop great alliances with other startups. Corfo is a huge player in that ecosystem. We kept supporting Startup Chile and like working with them and kept getting like a lot of support from them uh, after we ended the program in August 2019. And the opportunity that uh, Chile presents for you to develop ideas, not just via Startup Chile, but via the huge other uh, amount of organizations that are part of the ecosystem. For example, you have the National Center for Healthcare Systems. It's kind of like the only one in Latin America that's sitting down to think of issues such as interoperability, being part of HL7 International, implementing systems that really take a measure into providing quality information for patient exchange. We work with them since uh, February 2019 as well. So uh, those kinds of associations really make it uh, simpler in terms of developing a marketing niche and harder in the sense that you are co-developing that marketing niche with other startups that might be doing the same thing that you do. The, the great uh, opportunity is Chile to develop strategic alliances where each one does a certain job, then you integrate and you even form like joint products or joint services to help everyone in the market to cover that need. Like the discussion is a whole different level. In Venezuela and Dominican Republic, you become a trailblazer and the, the, the climate is of absolute competition. In Chile, the climate is of uh, a lot of collaboration and uh, a lot of making decisions between the actors and having real close access to the actors that make that make those decisions. It sounds like the trend that we are seeing in general in tech and in health tech, and that is more collaboration or competition, combining cooperation with competition or collaboration with competition which is something that I think we're just, you know, starting to learn. As a speaker of one of the previous episodes from Canada said, Mary Lou Ackerman, she said that, uh, like from her healthcare provider perspective, she would wish that healthcare vendors would speak more to other vendors because the end user is in the end faced with 17 or even more different solutions that he has to use. So it's very, very difficult for, for the user. Yeah, that's actually one of the main points that we uh, are taking into Pegasi. Like we handle this EHR, ERP vertical of things, and we have like this main 
information data flow going back and forth. So our idea is to become like the windows of uh, healthcare uh, IT in Latin America. Like you worry about developing artificial intelligence for your services. You worry about integrating advanced analytics or BI module for things. We handle that uh, gross amount of information so you can quickly integrate with us and complement those services. Kind of like the, the approach many uh, healthcare companies have done in the US, like using this interoperability, not as a, uh, as a problem, but instead as, as something you can use to offer added value to your customers. Uh, we mentioned before that um, data is aggregated and anonymized for various research and healthcare monitoring. Is this data gathering and data mining, is it done in any way with patient consent? Do they need to consent to, any, uh, to anything or is it just done automatically or is it mandatory? You know, if they are in a specific hospital, their data gets used for research. Uh, in Chile, you actually have to uh, have a written consent with anything that regards patient data. And we incorporated that for the rest of Latin America as well. Uh, whenever you onboard a, a patient in the platform, there's a written consent for the creation of this complete uh, EHR for that patient. So you can have this centralized medical record and the patient signs to it. And there's one clause in that that says like, hey, we're going to use your information for medical research. So if you agree, just click on this. If you don't agree with this, then it's okay. We don't use it. For example, in Chile, that, that is forced both for enrolling physicians in the platform and enrolling patients in the platform. Uh, in other countries, it's not forced, but we think it's a very good practice to have. Like inform the patient at the very, if they don't decide not to read the agreement and just click it, then yeah, it's, it's on them. But actually, you try to provide them with the information in a very legible manner, like, hey, we're going to use their information for this uh, purpose. And then the other thing that we do is we just do medical research. We don't use that information for either administrative research or whatever else. You must have an opinion about blockchain and federated learning. Is that something that you're thinking about? We actually have a couple of uh, interoperability pilots uh, that are based on blockchain. We don't, we don't develop blockchain on our own. Uh, there's a couple partners depending on the country. We have one in Mexico, one in Chile, and they, their blockchains, uh, usually help store medical information and prevent it from being changed. We have those politics in our databases as well, but considering that we are kind of using that information for analytics, it's much, much harder to develop that on blockchain. So we use like MongoDB and non, non SQL databases to store our information. And then we use uh, blockchain as a technology to communicate actors in the network. So we are very pro blockchain. We think uh, data blocks are a very good addition to what we need in health chain. I think blockchain based Healthcare records for interoperability for connecting institutions are the way to go. Uh, we hope that standard stays and propagates in the, in the next uh, few years, uh, as it's been developing on, on Europe in the past uh, couple of uh, two or three years. And we hope the trend reaches other parts of uh, of the world. But I think uh, there's something that we have to overcome at that time, and it's the fear of the healthcare sector sharing information. 
because that's something that's uh, usually we have to talk to our customers like for so long for them to understand the, the value of sharing that information and to understand that the patient is actually the one that owns the information. And they don't, they, their job is to just to word that information against a uh, patient physician privilege breach, you know. Can you uh, share any examples of what were the results of analyzing data? Any specific outcomes or findings that the institutions could then use and which institutions were benefiting from that? Yeah, uh, we had a, our, our main experience and the one that we got the idea that BI could be used for, for population health control and for population health management came from actually from Venezuela. We were developing a software for a very big children's hospital that we have in Caracas, uh, San Juan de Dios. It's like uh, St. John's of God, new translation, something like that. The idea from the, the hospital in San Juan de Dios was to gather all the information that, that was coming from different parts of the country where that they had missions. And one of the missions was, was in a place called Laguna de Sinamaica. And we had around 300 registries that were dropped into the database for around four days. And then there was this, the, the mission came back, and there was this huge transcription. And then we started seeing that the, the laboratory results were uh, positive for cholera. And then the, we saw the tendency, like uh, many of the cases that were presenting this cholera infection were coming from around Laguna Sinamica and healthcare situation there and the treatment of uh, wastewater is not the best. It's actually, uh, it's dumped right into the lagoon and people consume that water or they bathe in that water and they get cholera. And the, and the prevalence of cases in kids was really huge. So we saw the trend, detected the trend, told the administrative uh, personnel in the hospital, what can we do about this? And then they started to, uh, operating in that sector to prevent cholera and, and teaching people in how to treat water. And that alone gave us an, an award that was given to, to the company a while ago. It was around 10 or 11 years ago. And we saw that tendency by just analyzing the results that we were getting from the from laboratory tests. See, we saw also, we have done a lot of protocols with customers. Uh, the, the biggest one that we did involved around uh, 600 surgeries. We were comparing radical prostatectomy, the role of the prostate in men, the one that's done via scalpel and the one that's done via laparotomy. Okay, so uh, using an, an endoscopic camera. And we saw that the, the recovery time for the patients that did it via uh, endoscopy, even though the price is a bit higher, uh, the, re the recovery time for those patients took around two weeks less than the one that was done in a radical manner. And we published an article on that one as well uh, in an international magazine telling the reports. So if you naturally have that information and you start creating BI out of it, then you get great results that validate new things that you're doing in medicine or detect this kind of epidemic and endemic diseases. Sounds promising. So what's your biggest challenge at the moment for Pegasi? I think the biggest challenge for us right now is we migrated to a software as a service model because before uh, we did it one-time fee and that one-time fee license wouldn't comply with the, with the expectation that we had of mass adoption and having this information managed 
in a clear, secure, and accessible way. Usually, SaaS models are they take a while to be adapted. Our challenge right now is to scale the SaaS as fast as possible in Dominican Republic and Chile, which are the and Venezuela as well, which are the countries that we are targeting right now. But then have uh, enough funding to expand the initiative to Ecuador, Bolivia, Peru. That's the other market that we're looking at. Uh, Guatemala, Mexico, that are the markets that we want to open in the next uh, few years. So, uh, like validating the, the the strategy for each of the countries is also a challenge, but uh, I think it leads some, to some happy problems in how you can expand more effectively in each of the countries. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Stay tuned. Visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to get more information and insight about other episodes as well. Thank you. But each Latin America country is completely different. And then you have to know your lay of the land in order to grow in the market in a more effective manner.